Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Once upon a time, in the mid-1940s, two baby boys were born. You know both of their names, but you may not know how strangely the arcs of their lives mirror each other. Though, despite the similarities, there are also ways in which their lives couldn't have been more different. One of the boys was born in July of 1946. The other was born just a few weeks later in August. So their houses were roughly equally large. They both spent a lot of time in public schools, which were roughly equally well-funded. That's Daniel Markovitz, a professor at Yale Law School, who has written about what understanding the early childhoods of these two famous people can teach us. They lived in economically integrated neighborhoods, racially segregated, but economically integrated. And if you imagine today someone who is the son of a future president and the grandson of an investment bank founder, living in a roughly speaking 1,500-square-foot house in a middle-class neighborhood, going to a middle-class elementary school, almost inconceivable today, almost inconceivable. That person is put in a very particular place, surrounded only by other rich kids, goes to schools that spend and cost forty to $50,000 a year from age five onward, and is just trained and shaped to join this meritocratic elite. The little boy, who was the son of a future president and the grandson of an investment banker, was named George W. Bush, and he grew up mostly in Texas. Meanwhile, in Arkansas, the little boy, who was born just about a month later, grew up in a middle-class family. He never knew his father, who had died before he was born, and his mother remarried a man who drank heavily and was abusive. Both boys, though, would end up at elite colleges and graduate schools, Yale and Harvard for George W. Bush, Georgetown, Oxford, and Yale for Bill Clinton. During the years when these two future presidents grew up, Markovitz argues, America was inventing a new vision of meritocracy, one that shapes our lives today. So we had an an old elite, which was basically based on breeding and then on land, and financial capital. So these are people who owned large bits of land or they owned factories or they owned stocks. And they dominated the elite and they didn't work. And one thing that happened in the years after the Second World War is that some part of the elite decided that this was both unproductive and unfair and that it wanted to have people get ahead, not based on their parents' social class, but on their own accomplishments. And that was the idea of meritocracy and it started in schools and universities And it drove a transformation in our society and in our economy. And we're now living in the shadow of that transformation, which began with good motives and out of a kind of moral common sense. Markovitz is the author of the book The Meritocracy Trap, how America's foundational myth feeds inequality, dismantles the middle class, and devours the elite. And he argues that this new concept that began to reshape our world after World War II It ended up ensnaring us in an economic, political, moral, and educational morass, and actually limiting the ability of boys like Bill Clinton to go to the sorts of elite institutions and to assume the sorts of elite positions that he did. What's happened is we've created a system of training people and then measuring people, which is so intensive and so competitive that even when everybody plays by the rules— Only the rich can win it because only rich parents can afford to give their children the training that you need in order to get to the top in America today. And that excludes everybody else from income, status, dignity, 
and general social advantage. So the meritocracy trap excludes those who can't compete because they don't have the resources they need to compete. At the same time, if your parents do have the resources and you do have the money put into you, your whole life from infancy right through adulthood becomes a kind of a production process in which you're trying to make yourself or manage yourself in order to get the skills you need and then deploy the skills to make money. So the initial idea was, let's break from that old notion of inherited aristocracy and let people prove their own worth through merit. But that idea ended up not only concentrating money at the top, but valuable skills too. The middle class, it turned out, wasn't empowered. It was in trouble. And the elite transformed from wealthy people who may or may not have cared about working hard into largely people whose wealth was tied to rare skills and whose lives were consumed by an unrelenting drive to obtain those skills. Because the only way to get income out of that wealth is to work all the time, to train yourself all the time, and at whatever tasks other people are willing to pay you to do. So you become alienated labor. You're really rich, but you're not well. If it seems hard to shed a tear for wealthy people who work long hours, that's understandable. But the data around how hard such people work is unquestionable, and it's worth taking a second to puzzle over. If you're in the bottom half or so of income earners in the U.S., you work, on average, just under 40 hours a week. And that number has been falling, mostly because there's just less work available for workers in that group. Someone in the top 1% of income earners, people who you would think would be comfortable enough not to have to spend long hours at work, they work north of 50 hours a week, more than people at any other income level. And the number of hours that the 1% works has been on the rise for decades. And I should say, if you do serious scientific studies and you ask people in these jobs, how much would you be willing to work less in exchange for a sort of a proportionate decrease in your salary, the answer is about 10 to 20 hours a week less. So they really do want to work less. So the question is, why don't they? I think there are two parts to the answer. One part is that this system, meritocracy, makes not just your income but also your status depend on being at the top of this work regime. And so we live in a system in which the elite brags about how hard it works because it wants to show that it's in demand. You know, the Wall Street Journal has an advertisement that says people don't have time, who don't have time make time to read the Wall Street Journal. When I ask my students, how many of you have sent an email at 2 in the morning in order to demonstrate that you're still working. They all say yes, and then inevitably someone raises his hand and says, you know, there's an app for that, so you can fake that you're working. Markovitz teaches law school students who, he says, often earn $200,000 a year right out of school. But they tend to work 60, 70, 80-hour weeks. And that, just to kind of game it out for you, will put you at the office from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day of the week except Sunday. Now, you might think, well, couldn't you say maybe just work 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday so you could spend Saturday with your family? And you could just tell your law firm, well, how about you pay me, let's say, $160,000 a year instead of $200,000? Markovitz says, good luck with that. So that job does not exist, the one you're describing. That is not an option. It's death for your career. And if you look at interviews that sociologists have done with elite workers— they all say, 
I don't think we can deliver for our company or for our clients the service we need with less than, and then they say 60 hours a week or 70 hours a week. And then they'll also say something like, you know, a test for who is deserving, who is meritorious, is can you hack the hours? And if you can't, then they look down on you. In this new system, people at all different levels of income have become locked in, even though meritocracy was supposed to free us up. And it's making lots of Americans angry, which, according to Daniel Markovitz, means it's shaping politics across the spectrum. On both the right and the left, the diagnosis of the problem is just inaccurate. So on the right, the story is it's immigrants, it's globalization, it's people from the outside polluting and coming and trying to take away Americans' advantages. And that's just not borne out by the facts. On the left, the story is it's capital extracting income from labor or it's elites cheating to try to get ahead. And that's also not borne out by the facts. What's actually going on is that there's an incredibly hardworking and incredibly well-trained elite, which is playing by the rules. But the rules themselves, although they sound like common sense, are making everybody else miserable and then also harming the elite. And we can't get the politics right until we get the diagnosis right. Um, j- just for clarification here, who are these elite? Like, what kind of job? If I wanted to go find people, where, are they doctors? Are they executives? How much money are they making? Just give me a sense of who these people are sure. as, you, as you sort of uh, fashion it. Right. So here are some extraordinary facts about America today. If you take the five highest paid executives at the S&P 1500, so that's 7,500 people overall. Okay. In a recent two-year period, those 7,500 people took home income equal to almost 10% of the profits of the S&P 1500. So the S&P 1500, 1500 largest corporations in America. Exactly, roughly speaking. So that's 7,500 people are taking home a tenth of all the profits of the biggest companies in America. Wow. There's a law firm in America whose profits per partner now exceed $5 million a year. Goldman Sachs in a recent year had an average bonus across all its professional workers. These include 22-year-olds straight out of college of $500,000. $500,000. And that's you just your add, bonus. It's not your salary. That's just, your that's bonus. just like, that's your bonus. And that's here's right. something on top of that. Okay. That's right. Um, if you look at a cardiologist, in 1960, a cardiologist made about four times what a nurse makes. Today, a cardiologist makes seven to eight times what a nurse makes. If you take and just put together specialist doctors, lawyers who work at firms whose profits per partner are over $400,000 a year, professional accountants, professional management consultants, professionals working in finance, and people whose title is vice president or above at large companies, you get about three-quarters of a million people. So that's half the 1% right there. Okay. And that's who's making this money. So, you know, you talked about a cardiologist used to make, what did you say, four times what a nurse made in 1960? And now they make how many times what a nurse makes? Call it eight times. It's, you know, okay, who knows it's exactly. like about doubled. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, I just wonder who's to blame for that. Is that the cardiologist, like, taking the nurse's money? Or who, who uh, is to blame for this sort of realignment or this, like, heavy concentration of earnings in certain people? Right. So I think that there's a sense in which nobody's to blame and there's a sense in which we're all to blame. Nobody's to blame in that nobody is more greedy than they used to be. We're all to blame in that we've changed the way in which our economy works, medicine, for example, 
in a way that focuses on producing the output, in this case, good health, using extremely well-trained, extremely sophisticated workers and excluding others from the production process. So in, for example, heart health, we now know how to transplant a heart. We now know how to implant a mechanical heart. We do not know today what's better for your health, moderate exercise every day or intensive exercise once a week. Now, if we knew the answer to the second question, people like dietitians, personal trainers, exercise therapists would be incredibly productive and valuable, and we'd want a lot of them. And our heart health would be good enough that we would need fewer heart transplant surgeons. But because what we have is the technology to transplant hearts, those are the valuable people, and they get all the income because they provide all the value. And the underlying driver is a technological transformation that favors elite, super-skilled workers and excludes everybody else. Do you feel like that's true across the board, that the reason that people at Goldman Sachs and these partners at these law firms where people are making $5 million a year for being a partner, do you feel like what is driving money to those people, if you like dig down enough, is, well, technology has changed and these people have really, really benefited from that? Absolutely. Let me give you one more example from finance, and I can give you a list more if you want, but this one will drive the point home. In 1970, home mortgage finance, which deals with funding houses for people out of future income, was dominated by loan officers. These were mid-skilled, middle-class workers whose job it was to exercise independent judgment to see whether individual loans were providently made. Today, loan officers have been dramatically de-skilled. They basically are form filler enters. And at the same time, we've got a small number of super-skilled people who construct and trade derivatives. And that's because the technology of finance has shifted from accurate individual judgment about loans to the financial technology of derivatives trading. So this is that classic. People used to sit down with you and say, well, are you a good risk or not for this, taking out this mortgage? And now, like, somebody in a faraway city is crunching the numbers and, like, the, the person who actually meets with the, you know, the homeowner, they, they make no judgment. They have no real judgment to make. They have no discretion and they get paid like people who have no discretion. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is, say, very little. And it doesn't matter how accurate they are because people think they can correct this with the super skilled workers at the other side of the world. Which they may or may not be able Which to do they may or may as not we be able to. learned like 10 years ago. Exactly so. So... Let me ask you about a kind of concrete way in which the creation of the group of people that we were just talking about, the sort of meritocratic elite, as you term it, um, the way that they impact the middle class and the working class. And you tell the story of this town called St. Clair Shores in Michigan. It's changed a lot since World War II when that elite was invented. So talk about St. Clair Shores and how things um, you know, changed for the middle and working classes. Yeah, so St. Clair Shores is uh, just outside of Detroit. It's actually at nine mile, roughly. And it's a town that became what it was in the 1950s and 60s on the back of the auto industry. And it's a place where people used to, when they graduated high school, go down into Detroit, get a job with nothing but a high school education as a unionized auto worker. And then they get lifetime employment, lifetime training, and they could, by the time they were in their 40s or 50s, become tool and die makers. They could make eighty dollars to $100,000 a year or the equivalent in current dollars and have stable, flourishing, prosperous lives without anything beyond a high school degree. 
And the town reflects that. It's a town of well-built houses. It had a vibrant community. And the important thing to understand is the town is still not poor. It's not that it's a town that sort of slipped into poverty. It's a town that reflects the position of the American middle class today, which is one of stagnation, of lost future prospects, of lost hope. And the reason is that the jobs that people used to go into have now disappeared. There aren't as many jobs. They're not unionized. They're not lifetime. They don't pay anything like the same wages and benefits. And so the town has this feeling of a middle-class town that used to be at the center of America, that's now pushed to the margins, and that has the feeling all the excitement and energy and innovation are happening elsewhere, and they're happening in ways that will further diminish St. Clair Shores. Now, I think a lot of people hearing that story would think, well, you know, it sounds like jobs have sort of moved up the education ladder, like once having not having a college degree, could you could still get a really great job, a real a very steady job that you felt confident about that you could raise a family. Now that's not so true. So the answer is, uh, you know, better schools, stay in school longer. There's a lot of great schools in Michigan. Go to those schools. And and then some of the opportunities in banking and law, whatever it is, they'll be open to you. Why is that not the answer? There's a version of that that's the answer. And then there's a version of that that can't be the answer. And to understand the difference, one has to understand just how much education the rich give their kids. If you look at the difference between what's invested in a child of a typical one percenter in every year of that child's life and what's invested in a typical middle-class child's education, not a poor child, but a middle-class child's education, and you imagine that every year you took that difference in money and put it into a stock fund and gave it to the rich kid as a bequest when her parents died, that amount would be about $10 million per child. And that's a quantity of educational investment that simply can't be given to everybody. There's just not enough money in the society to educate everybody the way in which the coastal elites educate their children. And the consequences of that are it won't do just to beef up education at the bottom a little bit. Hmm. What has to be done is that elite education has to be made less exclusive. And everybody or many, many more people have to get a shot at getting into the best educational institutions, which would expand their enrollments and dilute elite education, which would be good for everybody. Hmm. Okay, let's uh, take a pause here just briefly. And we're going to be back for our last few minutes with Daniel Markovitz, author of The Meritocracy Trap, to talk more about this idea of chipping away at the increasing power of the elite um, and why changes to the status quo can be harder than you'd think. If you want to listen to or you want to share this whole segment, it's at our website, innovationhub.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Be right back. a young woman in Oklahoma working for the Social Security Administration got pregnant. When the pregnancy became obvious, she was given a less important job, which was not an uncommon practice at the time. Years later, after the woman went to law school and did incredibly well there, 
she decided to apply for a job at a big New York law firm. One well-known firm, the interview came in. This was a firm that wanted to show how avant-garde it was, so it was going to have a woman as a summer associate. He barely exchanged two sentences when he offered me a job. But the firm, avant-garde as it may have been, didn't end up hiring this summer associate, a woman named Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because they had already hired a woman for a full-time position. And so they, they had made their point about how progressive they were. There was no need for a, a, another token. When you, you think about what, what would have happened, suppose I had gotten a job as a permanent associate. Probably I would have climbed up the ladder, and today I would be a retired partner. Of course, that's not what happened to Ginsburg, who, despite her sterling legal credentials, had a tough time securing a decent job in the legal field because of her gender. But Ginsburg was breaking barriers and living at a time of immense change. According to Daniel Markovitz, a professor at Yale Law School, the post-World War II period witnessed the rise of a brand new sort of American meritocracy, one that redefined the old aristocracy and sought to replace it with folks, like Ginsburg, who deserved what they got and weren't just born into a world filled with trust funds, which both seemed like a good thing and, in many ways, was. So there's no question that the gender equality part of this is a great thing, not just for women, but also for men and for society as a whole, because it damages everybody when some part of the population is excluded from work education advantage. But, says Markovitz, who's the author of the book The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite, like almost every shift in law or in society— it had some unintended consequences. One was that high-earning men who used to marry women with little earning power suddenly began to meet and marry women who had earning power similar to their own. Male doctors obviously couldn't meet female doctors in medical school when women weren't allowed in. But once they were, the earning power of such couples became pretty impressive. And the share of American couples, both of whom went to college, has grown by something like five times since the mid-1960s. The share of American couples, both of them went to graduate school, has grown enormously since the 1960s. And that concentrates income in this generation. Now, the rise of the meritocracy is not just due to more gender equality. It's also because of technology and shifts in the way we live and the ways in which the economy and politics are organized. But Markovitz argues that the richest few percent of workers in America, people who now put in longer hours than any other group and tend to be executives, high-powered lawyers, specialist doctors, ultra-trained tech and engineering folks, well, they've become trapped in a rat race to maintain their own success. And at the same time, they're clouding out the sun for this country's vast middle class. How this happens, on a practical level, starts early. And to understand what's going on, it's instructive to revisit that new normal of highly educated men marrying highly educated women. It concentrates the capacity to train children to join the meritocracy. And these two educated meritocrat couples train their children like you wouldn't believe. And that further excludes everybody else. That's one real cost. So 
I, I wonder then, you know, you talk about this as being a trap and uh, wanting to, something that has really arisen in the past 70-ish years and that the ideal would really be to, in some sense, get out of this trap. How do you ever do that if what you're describing exists? I mean, you, you might... Even if you redistributed income a little bit more, or you know, you, even if you did things, I mean, if you have, as we were just talking about, if you have two surgeons married to each other and their goal is to get their children to enjoy the life that they have, to, to I mean, they succeeded in school, they want their kids to succeed in school. How do you ever equalize that situation when you when the top is so concentrated in terms of um, its intellectual capital? Look, uh, there's a reason I call the book The Meritocracy Trap rather than The Meritocracy Problem or something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's it's hard to get out. There are two ways in which it's hard to get out, and, and then I'll say something a little more hopeful. One is is individually. If you're outside the elite, you just don't have the resources to compete in a systematic way with the elite, and that makes it hard for you to get out. If you're in the elite and you try in like guerrilla warfare unilaterally to get out, an activist said to me, recently, what will happen is your whole world will come tumbling down on your children. And so it's hard to play this game one at a time. That's one way it's hard to get out. It's also hard for societies to get out. If you look across all of human experience, there is only one instance of a society that has had as much concentration of wealth, income, and privilege in as narrow an elite as the United States has today that hasn't ended by succumbing to war or internal revolution. So it's not easy The hopeful thought is that that society is the United States in 1929, so we seem to have the ability to do this, and there are policies and politics that could do it. The politics is important because once the elite sees that this doesn't serve it well, there's a trade in which the elite gives up some of its privilege in exchange for getting its freedom back, and that benefits the elite. And so whereas traditional redistribution says you're going to hurt the elite to benefit the middle class and the poor, redistribution today can say to the elite, look, you're going to be better off too. So you should get on board with this. And then there are policies that will work. Um, One thing to do is massively to expand education at the top. So require elite schools, elite universities, elite professional schools to double their enrollments, taking lots of new kids from the bottom two-thirds of the income distribution. They have the resources to do it. They're so gold-plated. They can massively expand very quickly. And that will simultaneously reduce the competition to get in and reduce the concentration of income. Can you really do that, though? You, you can just go up to Stanford if you're the government and be like, you know the number of people you take now? Double it. Thank you so much. I mean, like, is that really something you can do? I think the answer actually is yes, very easily. Um, let me explain. All these universities and also private schools are right now organized as not-for-profit corporations. They are not taxed. That means that their endowment income is not taxed, and it means that alumni donations are tax-deductible to alumni. Now, today, the endowments of the 10 richest universities in the country collectively add up to about $180 billion. If they keep growing at the same rate that they were growing over the past 30 years into the future— And if America's household wealth keeps growing at the same rate it was growing into the future, sometime in the 22nd century, those universities will own all of America. Now, that's not going to happen. And one thing that the government can say is, you know what? You have all this wealth. It's tax-advantaged. At the same time, right now, you 
educate more kids from the top 1% of the income distribution than from the entire bottom half. You are not a public charity. You're a private club. If you want to keep your tax exemption, you have to start behaving like a public charity. And the way you do that is you start admitting many more people from a much broader economic background and start serving the country rather than the elite. And then these institutions are going to be a very hard place to be in because they need these tax advantages to run the way they do. And I predict that they will give and it will be in their interest too because they're not going to own all of America. And so the real question for them is do they get unwound in a way that's consistent with their values or do they get unwound by pitchforks and anger in a way that harms their values? When you look out at the uh, 2020 contenders who, of course, have been um, on the stage a lot talking about policies and things that they would like to do, do you see in those policies like ways to kind of address um, this sort of meritocratic divide that we see? So I see some. Some of the Democrats who are focusing on relieving the burdens of college education for middle-class families are moving in the right direction. Some of the Democrats who are focusing on a trade policy that includes labor protections are moving in the right direction. But I also think that most of the Democrats still have the wrong fundamental diagnosis, which is they think, as driven largely by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, that we have so much inequality because of elite fraud and capitalist domination of labor. And I think those are not the principal causes of our inequality. I think they exist and they contribute, but most of what's driving this is something else. And until you have the diagnosis is right, you're not going to get the right cure. And when you say most of what's dri driving this is something else... Um... It's, elite, it's elite labor. Okay. It's elite labor of super trained, superordinate workers. It's the managers at the S&P 1500 who are taking 10% of the profits. It's the bankers at Goldman. It's the lawyers. It's the management consultants. And those people are mostly playing by the rules and they're getting incredibly rich. And they're the people who are extracting all the income from everybody else. Daniel Markovitz is a professor at Yale Law School. He's the author of The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite. Daniel, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a fascinating conversation. 